Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you've joined us. Hey, before we get to the show, we've got a little announcement to make. We are drawing winners for 10 HD radios all day today. And this hour, we want to congratulate Reese from Northville. Congratulations, Reese. Happy 1019 WDET Day. And apparently, happy belated birthday as well. Stay, stay tuned, of course, to WDET all day to win one of those 10 HD radios. So COVID changed lots about our lives. It changed the way we interact with each other. It changed the way that we think about all kinds of things that we thought of as normal. And in particular, it changed the way our economy operates, at least for now. The expanded child tax credit has aided struggling parents to feed their kids. Increased unemployment benefits had been helping workers out of a job for a really long time. And now Democratic representatives are working to expand the federal government's role in the lives of everyone with the possible passage of this $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill. Notably, all of those changes happened or are manifesting through the powers bestowed to our elected representatives. They have been at work, of course, since the pandemic began, trying to just hold on, trying to keep things churning as the world shut down. But lurking behind those apparent changes is an unelected body of people who are constantly tinkering with our economy out of sight, largely from the public. And during the pandemic, my next guest says these folks helped save domestic and global markets from utter collapse. At the onset of the pandemic, the Federal Reserve, like central banks around the world, intervened in 2020 to prevent catastrophe from besetting our financial system. In a new book called Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy, economic historian Adam Tooze explains how it did this and much more. Adam Tooze joins us now to talk about the shutdown and the economic consequences. Welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, good to be here. So your book begins with people shutting things down, with the world really abruptly coming to a halt as the virus is spreading everywhere and solid information is finally reaching people about the need to do those things. You titled your book Shut Down, but not Lockdown. I want to start there. What, why, why did you choose that kind of description for this? Well, it's a, it's a great question. Thank you for starting there. Um, I mean, when me and my publishers sat down to like think about a title for the book, you don't necessarily do that at the beginning, and we Googled lockdown books with that title, you know, all that came up were sort of prison exploitation novels about drama in, you know, correctional facilities. Because if you think back to the period before 2020, that's the way we use that term. Lockdown was something that happened to the wing of a prison if, you know, the, the, the guards felt they needed to impose order. 
And it is a term, of course, that began to become basically completely dominant in our understanding of what was going on in 2020. But it seemed worth sort of picking away at that, inquiring as to whether it was really the right way to describe what was happening. And, and there are parts of the world where um, it is a good description. Like in India, for instance, at the end of March, there was a sudden government announcement enforced by paramilitary police, same in South Africa. Even in France, you know, you needed a printed out police authorization to go for a three mile run in Paris. You know, you were only allowed to be a certain distance away from your home. But if you lived in a city like New York, which was obviously very badly hit early on by this crisis, it was a completely inappropriate description for what was going on. We did suffer a, a lockdown in New York in 2020, but it was in the aftermath of the the, the vandalism and looting that um, you know parasitically attached itself to the Black Lives Matter protests of that summer, when we were under a curfew. That's a lockdown. Um, what, what happened in early 2020 in the majority of large economies around the world is a flight to safety, a decision by households, by families, by workers, by businesses, by government offices in the end to pull back from public contact, to socially distance, to stay at home, to work as, possible, as far as possible from at home. And government action sort of stepped in to back that up. And the place where you see this most dramatically are the financial markets, which bent into a kind of huge global panic. Trillions of dollars were running for safety. And as you were saying in your intro, then in fact it was up to government agencies with the, with the balance sheet of the public sector behind them um, to sustain and enable that, that panic-stricken private run for safety. So shutdown seemed like a more open-ended term with which to capture this complex process. Mm. And the suddenness of this shutdown really, of course, delivered a shock to, to many different Absolutely. systems. Yeah. Uh, talk about how unprepared the world economy was for that, that suddenness, that, 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 that unexpected shock. Yeah, it's, it's in retrospect, you look back at an event like this, and you know, on the one hand, it's important to emphasize that, that, that it, it wasn't completely unanticipated, right? Experts have been for decades warning us that a pandemic like this could spread and that it would cause havoc and it would kill millions of people. And they were right. And they've been telling us, you know, this more or less right up to the moment when this particular strain of coronavirus broke out, you know, the people were running war games um, around, you know, the pandemic response literally in the fall of 2019 with participation by government and business from around the world. And then COVID actually arrives. And at that point, exactly as you say, it does sort of take us unprepared. And I think the sort of gap, the mental gap was really the idea that this would affect rich countries, deeply interconnected, globally interconnected, rich country hubs first. So it starts in China, in what's something, a country that we still sort of mentally locate behind an iron curtain. You know, people were drawing the Chernobyl analogy. So the analogy to the terrible nuclear reactor accident in the 1980s in the final years of the Soviet Union. So people recognized something bad was going on, but exoticized it by placing it, you know, on some far away distant place of which we know little. Then it hit Europe and then it hit the United States. And that's really what we weren't prepared for that an infectious disease could cause havoc, could cause havoc in the, the three hubs that together account for about 60% of global economic activity. And there really isn't, there wasn't, 
you know, it's, it's easy to say in retrospect there was no preparation. It's not altogether obvious what preparation for that would have looked like, to mm. be honest. I mm. mean, how do you brace for that kind of an impact? You do, in a sense, have to then rely on improvised shock absorbers to handle the fallout because prepping in advance would kind of put you in the position of a doomsday prepper, you know, constantly checking their nuclear fallout bunker and their increasingly out-of-date stocks of you know, lentils or whatever. Mm. And that's not a way in which you can perpetually run the world economy. So in the end, having to rely on the shock absorbers as we did is not necessarily an irrational thing. Obviously, in detail, one second guesses all the decisions that were made. And there's no doubt that millions of people have died unnecessarily. Um, but to have prepped the economy as a whole, I think, is probably an unrealistic expectation. And, of course, in the book, you talk about the unique ways in which central banks saved the economy. Uh, why is it that the central bank doesn't normally both conduct you know, quantitative easing while simultaneously buying treasury bonds, for instance? Uh, talk about what they did here that was unusual. Yeah, so, so for about 150 years, 170 years, you could almost say now, central banks, you know, starting with the Bank of England in the 19th century, have taken on this role of what's called the lender of last resort to banks and to the financial markets. So, and this reflects the realisation that the financial system, that like it or not, and many people, of course, are profoundly hostile to the system, but it exists, it's key to our economy, it's key to the normal functioning of society as well. And it's very fragile. It's incredibly powerful. It's also, of course, hugely profit-making for people who have privileged positions in it and the shareholders. But it's, it's also a flywheel on economic activity. But it has this, this fundamental aspect to it, which is that it's based on confidence. It's based on the willingness to extend credit to, to what's called transform maturity, so to put short-term money in and for it then to be tied down for long-term purposes. And this makes it inherently fragile and susceptible to any kind of big shock to confidence. And in the last 12, 13 years, we've seen you know, two of those. We saw it in 2008 and now we've seen it again in 2020. And central banks don't normally you know, extend to hedge funds and private equity firms and and um, banks, you know, the privilege of being able to sell whatever they need to sell at whatever price the Fed will give them, right? You don't necessarily always want to hang out that possibility. But in a moment of crisis, to prevent what's called systemic damage, sort of a, you know, a wildfire of, of mistrust and fear spreading through the financial system, the central bank does step in to act as you know, we call it lender of last resort, but really what they do is buy. They are the buyer of last resort. And, and why those two things are essentially the same thing is that when you, when you make a loan of a very large kind in the form of a bond, the person borrowing the money sells you an IOU. And so that's why we say the central bank is acting as a lender of last resort when what it's actually doing is buying, because it's buying these IOUs, absorbing them onto its balance sheet and giving whoever had the IOU cash and that's what the markets needed desperately in the second and third week of March. And relate that to the economic lives of ordinary people here in America and around the world. What, what did that mean for us that central banks behaved the way they did uh, in the early days of the pandemic? Yeah, it can seem very remote. And there's a sense in which this particular operation that they performed was particularly remote, which is why I 
wanted to highlight it because it almost went unnoticed. But just before we get into, as it were, what its ramifications are, it's simply worth saying how enormous it was. They bought, they were buying a million dollars a second. They were buying 70 to $80 billion a day in assets. They bought 5% of the giant US Treasury market in a matter of weeks. And that market is nowadays $21 trillion deep. So it's a huge um, you know, act of stabilization they performed on an absolutely gigantic market. It's as though like there's an ocean swell and you found a way of stabilizing an ocean swell. It's that kind of a that kind of an undertaking. How do you calm an ocean when it's stormy? Um, that's what they were trying to do. So you just suck a lot of the water out, and, mm. and, and they did that. It was crucial to do that because these um, bonds they were buying, the US Treasuries, are the liquidity piggy bank of the entire financial system. So they're one removed, so they're not the upfront lending that the banks do or the fund managers do, or the mutual funds do, in the form of buying the debt of a company, or even a municipality, or you know, a hospital system. But all of those kind of debts, all of those kind of investments, which are what generates the return, are also risky. And at moments of panic, they can be illiquid. In other words, you can't sell them easily and get back close to what you put in in the first place. So investment fund managers hold US treasuries, which are supposed to be essentially instantly convertible into cash as their backstop piggy bank against the riskier investments that they make. Two things bad were happening in March. The riskier investments were all appeared to be going sour. And so you were taking losses on that side. And then when you tried to sell treasuries, which you might be forced to do because investors were worrying and trying to get their cash out of their funds, you found you couldn't sell them either. And this is, where it, this is where the rubber begins to hit the road, because if you can't sell your treasuries, then you, can't, you don't have access to your cash piggy bank anymore. And at that point, you're going to have to start doing desperate things, right? You're, it's as though a, house has, you know, a, a household has run out of cash in its, in, its check, in its checking account and all of a sudden decides, you know, it's going to have to put, it's going to put, have to put you know, the kids' bedroom furniture on eBay to raise some cash overnight. And, and that's the sort of risk that we were facing. The entire Main Street credit apparatus, all of the lending to everyone's employers, um, would have been in peril if the Fed hadn't backstopped the Treasury market. Hmm. Added to which, as you were saying earlier on in your intro, the public purse, the government, the, the, the public sector has backstopped people's incomes during the crisis. So they did that on credit. And they need to be able to borrow to finance that. And it's that market, the market for borrowing, for government borrowing, that was malfunctioning. So both by way of a collapse in private credit and by way of a squeeze on public credit, this would have been a disaster. Mm. And when we uh, talk about the, the consequences of that, I think it's really interesting that there are both positives and negatives, right? There are things that have gotten worse because of the pandemic. But here in America, for instance, we're experiencing a real estate boom in many places, for instance, and and credit is very cheap right now. Uh, You can get a loan for a home or a car much cheaper than you could uh, before. Uh, Talk about the relationship of the actions that were taken at the beginning of the pandemic, and and what effect they're having on on those kinds of things now? 
No, that's absolutely right. And, and the, there's, a, there's a really sort of double-edged quality to these interventions. We've learned this now. The first time round when we had to do this after 2008, this came as a surprise. And it's part of what launched the whole preoccupation with inequality, you know, the 99% versus the 1%. Mm -hmm. This time round, we don't have that excuse. I think we know pretty much, pretty clearly what the divisive inequality enhancing logic of these kind of interventions is. And it's pretty direct because the way in which what you're trying to do is prevent the financial system from imploding. To do that, you flood the financial system with cash dollars. If investors are looking for places to actually earn a return, they can no longer earn a return in the government debt market. In Europe right now, the interventions have been so huge that Germany's government borrows at negative interest rates. In other words, you have to pay the German government to hold your cash in German government debt. It's, it's crazy, right? Um, so that means that investors go looking for any conceivable alternative investment to government debt, which is a huge part of the overall pile of assets, and it drives them into equities. It drives them into lower-rated co corporate debt. And so these sorts of interventions that we're talking about unleash a spiral of speculation, of appreciation of financial assets. And this is sold by way of the media outlets as a story that is relevant to everyone. But in fact, 10% of American households own 80% of all equities. So that S&P 500 index, which is on the news every evening or around the clock if you watch cable, um, is actually only relevant to 10% of the population. And within that 10%, it's really the top 1% that owns the overwhelming majority of those shares. But that's where, as it were, the hit comes from the monetary policy. And those folks, if you're lucky enough to have, you know, any a 401k of any kind of size, you will have seen huge appreciation over this period. So if you were able to keep your job, keep your house, um, stay out of trouble health-wise, you, you're looking at a, you know, a really big gain in terms of household net wealth. But it's only the fortunate few that are in this position. The offset is what you started by talking about, which is the government, the measures that were agreed by Congress, mm -hmm. elected politicians did their job this time and delivered really substantial uh, benefit payments for the, the, you know, the tens of millions of households that depend on benefits on food stamps and so on. And um, but that's the this is the, you know, the bit of economic policy, which is easiest to do where you can just hit the button, really, it's really just a matter of keystrokes on a keyboard is the bit which systematically benefits those who are that top 10% of the wealth distribution who have some stake in financial markets. And the other, the bit which affects the majority of the population is haphazard, you know, literally you have to follow it day by day in Congress. They're arguing over it as you and I speak right now this week, and we're not certain what's going to come out of that process. Will it just be the 1.1 that they've agreed by partisan, or will it be the 3.5 that the you know, the, the, the Biden administration and the progressives want, or is it just going to be two that they can get with, you know, Manchin and Cinema? But, it, you know, it hangs in the balance. And, and last year, you know, there was this extraordinary moment when President Trump, as he still was at that point, decided he'd rather go golfing for 24 hours, 48 hours, <laughs> rather than sign, sign a, you know, sign a bill which had actually been agreed in Congress. Very different, you know, different strokes for different folks. Like, to not the same sort of support for everyone in society. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation uh, with Adam Tooze about uh, his new book, uh, Shut Down, How COVID, COVID Shook the World's Economy. 
We want to hear from you as well. Call and talk to us about money. How were you financially affected during the pandemic? What kind of things helped you stay afloat? How is your financial life different now from pre-pandemic times? What looks different uh, for you in terms of money or savings or investment or even work? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You also can go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest this hour is Adam Tooze. He is an economic history professor at Columbia and author of a new book titled Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. We're talking about the, uh, the consequences of the shutdown, the sudden shutdown caused by COVID-19, the response by governments, uh, by central banks that were aimed at mitigating the consequences of that shutdown. And we're talking about where we are right now. We want to hear from you, where you are right now. Call and tell us what money looks like for you uh, in the middle of a pandemic. Did you have to make uh, sudden decisions yourself in your personal life about finance? Did you lose a job? Uh, Did you have to sell a house? Uh, Did you have to reorder things in a way that you maybe never imagined you might have to? Uh, Give us a call and let us know how your life, your financial life, looks different from pre-pandemic times. Uh, Also give us a sense of... What you think about work right now, it's an important part of that as well. I think uh, the number of people who are really rethinking the role of work in their lives and the connection between work and money uh, is really interesting. So uh, call and tell us how you're sorting through all of that. 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with uh, Anthony in southwest Detroit. Anthony, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Stephen. Yeah, well, I just know that that uh – Namely, the CARES Act, uh, which passed last year, you know, and really uh, transferred a lot of money through that, uh, you know, bond buyback program in the Fed. But that uh, was the biggest wealth transfer in uh, American history, human history, Hmm. and bigger than the bailout, you know, that was back in 2008 or nine. And so basically it's it's an unsustainable situation the united states we don't really make things like we used to uh you remember when they were trying to retool everyone to build uh ventilators and hand Mm -hmm. sanitizer and masks Mm -hmm. well the american economy is just financialized so how sustainable can an economy be based when it's based on exponential debt and exponential currency 
which, you know, 40% of all the U.S. dollars ever created, this is according to the St. Louis Fed, were created in the last year or so. So what do you call it when you have more money chasing the same amount of goods and hmm. services? Uh, Anthony, that's a really, uh, really great question. I'm glad you called uh, and injected that into the conversation. Adam Tooze, I'll give you a chance to, to respond. Yeah, I mean, this is... Um the, your caller, you know, is putting a really good point and one that is, as it were, causing economists around the world to scratch their heads. The, I think the key, the, the key, the operative phrase in, 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 in that, you know, that, that common expression, you know, more money chasing the same amount of goods is bound to give us inflation is whether the money is actually chasing the goods. Um, and that's not what we've seen really in the period since 2008. So the balance sheets, exactly as your caller said, have blown up spectacularly. So this shows up as money, quote unquote, issued by the Fed. But one shouldn't imagine that this stuff has been, as it were, pumped out of a printing press, that those famous printing presses that print those you know, sheets of green uh, got dollars are actually churning this money out. These are claims basically being created on the balance sheets of the Fed. So when what you do is you buy treasuries, which are, you know, two-year, five-year, 10-year, 30-year bonds, mm -hmm. and you take them off the balance sheets of banks, you give them cash claims, and those show up then as reserve deposits of those banks with the Fed. And that money is not out there chasing anything. It's simply a shift in the posture of the financial system to be more liquid so as to be able to answer the call of investors if they want cash out of the bank. Now, there is a real risk, of course, in this that people could in fact draw down that cash in various ways and try and go and spend it. And we've seen some of that in the last 12 months or so, but nowhere near in proportion to the money that was, you know, in scare quotes, issued last year. Mm. So what's happened is, as it were, the, the, if you think of the, the United States as, a, as having a gigantic balance sheet, what's happened is that longer-term claims on the American taxpayer have been swapped with the Fed for immediate cash, and the Fed now has those claims on its balance sheet, and it will be up to policymakers to, work, to look, as they are very attentively doing, how much spending can the American economy absorb if folks actually go and spend this stuff, and what were the countermeasures that would need to be taken if it looked as though inflation was running far further out of control than it currently is. The smart money now, the big, big money in the markets is betting that inflation is transitory, that it will restabilize. It might be a tick above 2%, but folks are pretty comfortable with that longer term. Right now it's over 5%, but that's largely being driven by the huge shock that's coming from the energy side. And it's in large part what's called a base effect thing. So last year prices were very low. So if they go up this year, you get these huge percentage point swings like, you know, uh, gas is like 40% up over last, same year on year over last year. But that's the that's the view. It's it's not as though folks don't see your caller's point. They absolutely do. But they are monitoring it as closely as possible to make sure that that balance between the rate of spending, which is the money chasing things, and the amount of goods out there for the money to chase does in fact stay relatively in kilter so that we don't get a surge in inflation. Hmm. That's the game they're playing. That's why, you know, being a central banker right now is really is really a bit of a, you know, it's a real conundrum. They're, they're doing a lot of thinking about how to manage that problem. And, and the politicization of all of this is another kind of interesting dimension right now. I mean, you've, you've got both 
parties, I think, trying to, to, to pin the bad economic effects of the pandemic on the other here in America. Uh, you know, meanwhile, th- this is a, a more substantive economic problem that I think probably requires uh, a solution or a set of solutions that don't have much respect to one party or the other. Yeah, this goes, it goes pretty deep. I mean, I think the political parties are involved in that blame game. Um, in fact, you know, last year in 2020, there were moments, CARES Act that your caller mentioned a second ago, is that, you know, is a remarkable instance of bipartisan cooperation. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there was bipartisan cooperation also in December to get the second package through. Mm-hmm. And there is a bipartisan infrastructure bill, all of which are pretty substantial. So what's even more surprising though if you do if you look if you trust the opinion polling if you look at the so-called confidence test one of the most important is in fact done in michigan by the university of michigan which polls americans not policymakers and politicians but 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 business owners and americans households in general what's utterly astonishing is that the attitudes towards people's assessment when they're asked how how confident are you about business conditions their answers are completely polarized by partisan alignment. So if you look, for instance, at the small business community, which overwhelmingly votes Republican and was very keen on Trump, their opinion about business conditions in the United States shoots up into the positive zone in November uh, 2016. And then as the reality sinks in of Trump's loss in the fall of 2020, their confidence collapses. And this is supposed to be a measure of business opinion about business conditions. And what it appears to be tracking is the sense that now, you know, the wrong people are in charge in Washington, so everything's going to go to hell. And you see the reverse effect on the Democratic side. So, you know, it's not just, as it were, the political parties at work, but but the society that we live in is so polarised in terms of its attitudes. And these are, I'm, I'm not criticising this, I'm sure these are entirely sincerely held views. When you ask folks, you know, how do you view the future of your country and your business? Their answer is very heavily influenced by who they think has power in Washington. Mm. And it's so it's really, and this of course goes down. We imagine this goes into the business decision making. Like, you know, if you're, if you're a small, medium sized business and you are convinced that, you know, democratic power in Washington is going to produce a regulatory environment or a tax environment that's hostile to you, the IRS is going to come after you, or whatever the imagining is. You know, presumably that that causes you to not grow your business in the same way, not to hire people, not to make investments, and the and the reverse is true for the for the other side. So it's really it goes into the heart of the economy. It's not just the game that's being played out in the news channels and by the politicians. Mm. Again, Anthony, thanks very much for the call and the really great question. Let's go to James in Dearborn. James, welcome to the show. Are you there, James? Oh. Yes, can you hear me? I can. Go ahead. Uh, yes, um, my question is, um, do you compare the Great Recession to uh, to this uh, pandemic long term? Are we better off now um, than we were um, compared to the Great Recession? And if not, uh, what would be the uh, first market to fail, um, if you can give me that? Great questions, James. I really appreciate the call. Adam, go ahead. So the immediate effect of the shutdown in 2020 was worse than anything that we saw in 2008. If this is, I think this is what you're referring to with the Great Recession. I think it is, it? yeah. Yeah, it's this great phrase. That, so the Great Depression is the 1930s. 
the Great Recession is 2008, mm -hmm. and let's call last year the COVID shock or the, shut, or the shutdown shock. Um, the, the impact in 2020 last year was, was worse than either of the two preceding great shocks. If you, know, if you look at the long sweep of the American economy, these are the three things that you can see on the graph. Most of the time it just grows up because this is a dynamic growing economy. Um, the difference between the 2008, 2020 and the 1930s is that the shock was so sharp in 2020. And that's also, to go to your caller's question, the basic difference between our situation now and our situation in 2008. The agonizing thing about the aftermath of 2008 is that it took forever to recover from it. It is an incredibly slow recovery. And the recovery never really took us back to what economists call the trend. So the trend is if you draw a hypothetical line across the growth, the data points, and you can then project that out and say, if we hadn't had the 2008 banking crisis, where would we have expected to have been mm. now? And we never got to that point. So we did resume growth and labor markets came back and we got to full employment, but there was a permanent loss of output that we suffered. What we don't seem to be seeing that this time to the same extent, we're not fully back yet, like 4 million Americans have dropped out of the labor market, either through choice or necessity. Um, so we are not back to where we were. But I think the big difference is probably that we did enough last year to avoid damage to balance sheets. So the disaster of 2008 is not just the financial crisis as such, right? That, but that 12 million American um, families lost their homes, mm -hmm. especially if you look at minority balance sheets. If you look at the wealth of the African-American community, the Latino community in the United States, they took huge hits to the wealth accumulation they'd managed to put together in the decade before, in many cases, by investing in real estate, which they were able to do in part because they were able to access for the first time various types of subprime lending. That was all wiped out after 2008. And that's an enduring shock, right? It takes a while for a family to come back from that kind of a loss if it ever manages to do that. One of the benefits of what we did last year was to put the economy on life support, to put families on life support, Statisticians in Chicago tell us, at University of Chicago tell us, that the rate of poverty in America actually fell last year because the transfer of benefits was so generous. Right? Households, in fact, have accumulated unspent cash on their balance sheets. All of that suggests that we might not suffer the same kind of protracted, slow recovery that we saw after 2008 that was so damaging to so many parts. I mean, especially you know, you're, we're speaking to you, uh, I'm speaking to you in Detroit. I mean, mm -hmm. you folks know only too well how brutal that, you know, obviously Detroit's been in a period of protracted economic difficulty, but 2008 was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Sure. And um, that kind of shock we don't think we're going to experience after 2020. I mean, it's really remarkable if you think about it. A, a once in a century pandemic doesn't have the kind of effect, the same effect on the economy, the, the, the same negative consequences uh, as as the the Great Recess Recession, which is, I mean, it's a man-made uh, problem. I mean, the, the, the issues that, that caused that recession were, I, th I think, probably a little more predictable than, than the pandemic itself, uh, but, but certainly they were things that human beings did or did not do uh, it's kind of counterintuitive, I guess, that 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 was worse than than the pandemic. 
Well, I mean, we learned a few things. I mean, there's a good news story hidden in here. Like, you know, bad as things are and as gloomy as we tend to be, there are some good news stories here. Like, it could have been worse, right? So, uh, and this is where we started our conversation a few minutes ago, right? If the, the authorities, the, the, the central banks reacted at, at, on a gigantic scale, it's, it's an order of magnitude. It's like 10x times larger than what they did in 2008. Mm. Also, they made the bank balance sheets more robust, right? One thing we didn't have to deal with in 2020 was a big bank uh, on the edge of crisis. I mean, the, and we didn't have to do that, A, because the banks themselves have learned lessons and they're not suicidal, and B, because regulators intervened and forced them to strengthen their balance sheets. So we've put ourselves in a much better position. I mean, we could be even better off, let's be clear. In Europe, they didn't even see a surge in unemployment, and they didn't see a surge in unemployment because they have a short-time working system where they can furlough people from work the government picks up a large part of the wage bill and people don't go through the horrendous experience of losing their job, all the insecurity that's associated with that, the trauma, just didn't happen in Europe. So people stayed in their jobs and the cost to the employer was shifted onto the balance sheet of the, of the, of the public sector for a matter of months. It's a model the Germans experimented with in 2008. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the Germans, they don't have an unemployment spike either in 2008 or 2020. So we learned lessons. We're getting better at managing these kind of shocks. And there are more lessons that we could learn. Um, you know, having an adequate unemployment insurance system would be a start for the United States. I don't know what Michigan's situation is, but, um, you know, down south in Florida or whatever, the unemployment insurance system is basically non-existent mm -hmm. and it's a punitive system designed to deter people from making legitimate applications. And in a situation like the one that we saw last year, um, that's catastrophic, obviously. So there are there are lessons learned here. We We actually have gotten better at managing this kind of thing. If you look at the People in Congress. I mean, you know, I, I, this is going to sound partisan, but this is the way this 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 you know pans out. The Dems have learned their lesson, right? They know that after two thousand and eight, they didn't go big enough in the first months of the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. They settled for a stimulus that was seven fifty billion, whereas their own advisors were saying it should have been one point seven trillion. And this time around, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, they were driving this already in 2020. Think what you may of them as professional politicians or whatever, but they have woken up, smelled the coffee and realized that we actually need to go really big on this. And the rescue plan, that in the sense, the most impressive of the three stimulus plans we've had so far is the one that was done in March this year, because that has a minimum of pork. I mean, that really is a lot of money, 1.9 trillion or so, targeting at, targeted at middle and low income American households, where the money should be going in a situation like this. The Fed is doing its thing in the background, but at that moment, you really have the elected officials of the country delivering for the majority of the population what they, what they thought they needed and to help, as it were, America come out of the social crisis. Remember how bad things were at the beginning of this year with the pandemic out of control before the vaccination had really started. So yeah, I think, you know, we shouldn't, you know, one can look around the world and say China did it better and so on and so forth. This is all true, but we shouldn't despair of a system that is able to make and take the steps that the US did. The question, of course, is can we carry on? Can we hold it together? Or are we going to end up in the sort of impasse we look like we're drifting towards in Congress? The last time I checked the news, I mean, it's really a matter of hour by hour, right? Now, right? <laughs> That's right. You know, what deal they're going to be able to do. So you always have to be a bit careful. <laughs> right, right. Okay, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Adam Tooze. We also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. Call and tell us how your financial life looks different after the pandemic. What kinds of decisions did you have to make 
about finances because of the shutdown? Uh, and also, what are you looking forward to now? What kind of financial outlook uh, do you have as we're starting to really come out of the pandemic? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to include you in the show that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Adam Tooze. He is a history professor, economic history professor at Columbia, also author of the new book, Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. We're talking about that shakeup of the world economy, what governments and central banks did to mitigate the consequences of it, and where we are now. How does your financial life look? How was it affected by the shutdown uh, forced by the pandemic? Uh, we want to hear from you about that on the phones and on social media. Give us a call at 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, you can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to James in Detroit. James, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi, Stephen. Thanks for uh, having me. Sure. Um, <clears throat> my question is, is, the guest mentioned earlier that, you know, the Fed pretty much supported the 10% that have stocks, bonds, et cetera, real estate. Uh, if that support is what's keeping those markets going, at what point do they stop? And what does that look like for folks who, you know, are investing? Great question, James. Uh, Adam, go ahead. Yeah, this is the trillion dollar question everyone is asking themselves in the markets, not just in the US, but globally right now. And my sense um, is that they can't really stop and they're not going to stop. What they're going to do is slow down what they're doing. They're going to, with with very much in mind the question one of your earlier callers posed, like what is the inflationary pressure here? How much money is there out there sloshing around chasing the goods that are available? That's their entire calculation right now. But they know that they cannot just step back and let market forces rip. And they know they can't because the level of leverage, the level of indebtedness in the system means that businesses and the government itself are acutely sensitive to interest rates. So it's really quite difficult to see now after the best part of 10 years with interest rates in the very low levels, you know, for prime borrowing, um, we're talking one, two, maximum 3% over a period of a decade. And as I was saying, globally, there are many countries around the world that borrow at negative interest rates. Now that creates a sort of, a, you know, that creates balance sheets, that creates expectations, which it's just not easy to see how they would survive if interest rates moved up into the four or five or six percent range. Now, historically speaking, four, five, six percent is really not even, you know, this isn't this isn't a nosebleed territory. In the early 80s, some folks will remember, you know, we were in the teens. Um, 
But four, five, six percent right now would be devastating for large numbers of borrowers worldwide. And so that's just not a reality that can be permitted to happen. So the conversation really is about a kind of codependency, essentially, between markets which are, have become used to and are structured around and set up for interest rates at very low levels and policymakers who, in a sense, are bound in to um, sustaining that. We used to talk about too big to fail as being you know, the characteristic of certain very big banks. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to ignore the fact now that, in a sense, the entire market has become too big to fail. And that's one of the things that we saw in 2020 is the Fed was reaching out and it wasn't just investing. Well, it wasn't just promising to backstop the treasury market and the mortgage-backed securities that are issued by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and underpins, you know, conforming mortgages, mortgages across the US. They promised. They didn't actually do very much of it, but they promised to backstop private credit as well. And the Fed doesn't really need to do very much more than promise. If the Fed promises and people believe them, then it's all of a sudden a really good idea to buy this stuff, right? Because there's no downside. The Fed is there to pick you up. And so when private investors do buy the debt, then the Fed doesn't need to step in. So you're in a virtuous circle there. But overall, it's very difficult to come back to your caller's question to imagine a world in which we ever retreat. The buzzword used to be normalization, by which central bankers meant the world before 2008. I don't expect to see a lot of talk about normalization. Tapering, perhaps, by which they mean reducing the amount of assets they buy that we're going to, is all over the news all the time right now. But normalization in the sense of actually going back to the world before, I would be like amazed if that's on anyone's mm. agenda. Yeah. It's all about maintaining this relationship, which is now deeply entrenched on both sides. Sure. Yeah. Again, James, really great question. And thanks for the call. Let's go to Viva in Gross Point. Viva, what's on your mind? Hi. Hi. How are you? Can you, can you hear me? I can. Yes, go ahead. Okay, great. Well, um, I'm, I'm really curious about kind of the impact of the pandemic on restaurant workers. We've seen such mm-hmm. a shift. Restaurants are now trying to attract employees, which mm-hmm. would put um, the larger organizations at an advantage compared to the small business restaurant. So I'm interested in if this is sustainable, if those benefits they're going to offer um, employees is something we would see in the long run, or is it just, you know, current until we, you know, build up that employee base hmm. for frontline staff? Yeah, a great question, Viva. And I'm glad, I'm really glad you called. I, I don't think we've talked enough, Adam, this hour about work uh, yeah. and how work has changed and how yeah. work's change is affecting the economy. So Viva's, Viva's question is is right on that point, I think. Yes, and I don't think we talk enough about the sectors which are most exposed to this shock and the uncertainty that still shrouds all of them, to be honest. Because, you know, in the worst case scenario, we have another variant that hits everyone next year and we have to go into some sort of lockdown. Mm-hmm. I feel this very directly personally because my wife has a small tra- uh, travel business. And so she was, you know, her business was shut down sure. 2020, 2021. She still doesn't know whether she can confidently plan a 2022 season. She's got everything booked up. She's on the phone just right now with, you know, hotels in Europe. No one in that sector, as in the restaurant sector, as in the theatre world, you know, frankly, even in education, is fully confident that we are able to assume that next year is going to be normal. So what you see there, as your caller is suggesting, 
is a sort of scramble to, to get back into the market as quickly as you can to, to claw some of the losses back that you suffered last year. Um, and that then becomes very asymmetric because the bigger, the bigger fish in the pond are able to get in, they're able to get the, the, the best workers and offer the best benefits. And on top of that, the restaurant sector, and of course you see that all around you in a city like New York, no doubt also in Chicago, like it's a sector with huge churn. You know, there are some sectors like malls, for instance, where we think the impact of the crisis is going to be terrible, but they, you know, they take tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to build their long-term investments. And the question really is a tipping point. Like some of them will just go over the edge and never come back. Restaurants are a sector where people go in, plunge in, most of the businesses fail within a short period of time, and then people come and do it again, right? Because there's something inherently attractive about this line of work, and everyone has this fantasy. And so what's really interesting, and it's painful, of course, we shouldn't speak academically about this, these are people's existences that are on the line. The churning effect in 2020 was just disastrous. Mm -hmm. Like businesses which were fragile anyway were just tipped over the edge in their thousands, hundreds of thousands across the country. Entire blocks worth of businesses shut in you know, my neighborhood in New York. And some of those are coming back, right? Because that's also the logic of this business. Restaurants close and then they reopen. And they are all caught up precisely in this logic that your caller is talking about of all of the sectors in the US economy where we're seeing, as it were, the most persistent long-term change in employment patterns. I was just looking at the numbers in the Wall Street Journal this morning. The, the two sectors which appear to be most directly affected by this are restaurants on the one hand and hotels on the other. Mm -hmm. And you can see, you know, see why they're directly exposed to these risks. A lot of people left the sector, started looking around for other types of work, discovered online options. A lot of people do that kind of work who have complicated family schedules, you know, and, and have to work it around uh, childcare arrangements. This is often uh, women's work in many cases. Yeah. And um, all of those arrangements have been kind of tossed up in the air by the crisis, and it'll take time for those to settle back into yeah. normal patterns. The good news here is that wages have gone up. Right. right. So for the first time, the restaurant sector is, I think, on average in the U.S. now paying over $15 an hour, Yeah. which is good news for workers. That is good news. Absolutely. Okay, Adam Tews, it was really wonderful to have you with us here for this conversation. Uh, congratulations on the book, and thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for being with you. That's going to do it for us today. Special thanks to Detroit Today student producer Sam Corey for his help on today's show. Come back tomorrow when the new Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission kicks off its series of public meetings on the draft maps. We're going to talk about what they look like and how you can help decide what our political districts are going to look like for the next 10 years. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.